Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church. Good morning. Let me get set up here. Excited to get into Revelation 14. Uh, with you went pretty good in the first gathering, so excited to get to uh, teach here. My name's Corey, one of the pastors on staff. Good to be your teaching pastor uh, for the next few weeks, and uh, excited to sit with you in uh, the book of Revelation. And so I don't have time to give you a big, uh, crazy introduction as to where we've been in this book. If you're uh, new to Heights, I'll say welcome. Uh, if you think we're crazy, we are. And so we, uh, we love the Word of God, man. We preach straight through books of the Bible. We believe that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it's without error. Uh, and that this book here specifically, like many of the books, or you could say all the books, uh, but this book specifically is meant to be read aloud. And so we want to read every single word of this book together uh, as a family and preach on every single word uh, of this book as long as the Lord uh, will allow us to. And so a brief introduction for you, uh, I think I can do this, is uh, last week, if you were here, uh, you'll remember that I had a, a big idea that is Jesus is everything Satan pretends to be. And if you were here, then you, would, you can maybe recall, uh, let me refresh your memory. Uh, we saw that Satan was a parody or he was an imitation or a mimic to what is good and right and perfect and holy and just. And so you saw an unholy trinity instead of the beauty of the trinity. You saw a dragon and two beasts, if you remember. And then you saw a false gospel instead of the true gospel where you had a beast that was coming up out of the water and had a mortal wound. He had experienced a, a blow from Jesus. And now there's this resurrection taking place where the beast is coming up out of the water. And there was a, another beast that had given that beast authority and dominion and power. And there's a lot of language that was used there that is used for Jesus in the New Testament. And so the whole chapter, the point that the Apostle John is making is that Satan is just a parody. He's a mimic. He cannot do anything new. He's not done anything new from the moment he got kicked out of the kingdom into the garden into all the times throughout the Old Testament and new where you see Satan trying to thwart the plan of God. He's an imitation is the point that the Apostle John was making for us last week. Well, this week, um, we're going to get just directly into it. And so this week, we're going to see, we have a big idea. The big idea for this week is, no one steps, should be together, sorry, no one steps into the kingdom without stepping over the cross. No one steps into the kingdom uh, without stepping over the cross. Three points to help you get there, to help me get there and stay on track. The first is the eternal gospel. We get to lead off with the gospel instead of ending uh, with the gospel, which is fun. Uh, the second is the warning and the plea. And so the Apostle John gives a warning uh, to the church, mind you. He is talking to the church, to Christians here. Then the third is the final judgment, kind of a lot of the justice and, ju- or the justice and judgment yeah, that we've seen in Revelation is kind of pointing to this moment here at the end of this chapter. So three points, one big idea per usual. When you're ready, say ready. All right, the first one, the eternal gospel. Verse one, then I looked and behold, on Mount 
Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000. If you put a pin in that for a moment, if you remember, that was the number of completion. It was a perfect picture of worship. About four chapters ago, you have Gentiles, that's non-Jews, and then the Jews, and they're hanging out together now in the kingdom of God, and they're worshiping the same Jesus. This is a people group, people groups that could not be in the same vicinity of one another. If a Jew came around a Gentile, that Jew is considered unclean and had to go through a whole ceremonial rites of purification. And yet here in the kingdom, four weeks ago, we saw this beautiful aspect of worship where it was both Jew and Gentile coming together, this beautiful picture of worship. And so with him was the 144,000, we continue reading, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. They had Jesus' identity given to him. Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And so the Apostle John is inviting us in. He's going to continue inviting us in here in chapter 14 to some contrasting imagery, no different than what he's been doing in the book of Revelation as a whole. And so right now we get to see this perfect picture of worship. We get to see a perfect picture of the church. It's not only 144,000 as some religions believe, some denominations believe. If that's the case, church, we got a lot of work to do because 144,000, I probably ain't making it in at that point. It's been a lot of people to profess faith in Jesus since he has come. And so this is imagery for what this worship set would have looked like. And keep in mind, he says, these are those who are marked. These are those who are found righteous in the eyes of God. Last week, we addressed that number, 666. If you remember, if you missed it, man, all of your questions that you would have ever had would have been answered last week, right? And so who's the Antichrist? What's the false prophet? What does 666 mean? That was all last week. Well, 666 is simply the number of incompletion. Seven, the number of completion. Six, and the repetition of it three times just simply meant Satan was perfectly imperfect. He was completely incomplete. And so here, if we could put a number on them, it would be 777. It is a perfect picture of worship from the perfect church that is in the kingdom of God, man, and it is powerful. It is booming. And at the same time, it is melodic. It is beautiful. I was thinking about this uh, yesterday, actually, and uh, Andrea, my wife and I, if you ever want to know what to gift us with, okay, just, just throwing it out there, okay? We were gifted at one point by a family that really, really, really loved us, you know, just if you want to show your love, just saying, you know, a few caveats here, gave us a trip to Cabo, okay? And so we were gifted with this trip to Cabo, and if you have ever been, anybody ever been to Cabo? Okay, three of us. Cool. Okay, cool. Okay, you're like, why would I give you that trip? I haven't even been to Cabo myself. <laughs> been to Cabo. It's super beautiful, and I believe that's where the Sea of Cortez meets the Pacific Ocean. They have these, these mat, these. I don't say massive waves. It's not like Hawaii. They have really big, powerful waves, and the waves they don't break out on the ocean. When we were there, anyway, they broke up on the shore. And so whenever these waves would break, they would literally shake the ground. And they were so powerful, they invoked like anxiety in us. They were booming. And at the same time, it was beautiful. I mean, we sat up on this big rock and we just watched these waves break for a while. We sat there for a while together. And so it was both booming, you don't want to mess with it. And at the same time, it was beautiful. It was melodic. 
It wasn't quite like a harp, but it was both of those things. The Apostle John is saying, this is what worship is going to be like in the kingdom. It is going to be beautiful, church. And it is going to be booming at the same time. It is going to be incredible. Verse 4, we continue reading. It says this. It is these, pardon me, I'm losing my voice a bit. It is these who have not defiled themselves. Listen to what he says, who he sees. It is not these who, sorry, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. If this is our litmus church, how are we doing so far? For they are blameless. Verse 6, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. With a what? Within an eternal gospel. Point one, eternal gospel. To proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, and to every language, and to every people. So what are these, what's happening here in the text? This is, I want to be really clear uh, here. I was talking about this at the end of the first service with somebody up here in the front row. There's a lot of men, as we've learned, as we've learned in our church, that have used this text, used this book specifically to, to invoke upon you a great deal of spiritual abuse. I've had a, multiple people come forward now throughout this series that have said, man, thank you for just sticking to the text. Thank you for the way that you and David have approached this text. This is not a book that is meant to scare you, church. It's a book that's meant to bring encouragement. It's a book that has been written to bring empowerment to the saints in the midst of incredible tribulation that has taken place in their church at the, t- at the writing of this. And so what is not happening is he's not, the Apostle John is not saying you have to be sexually immoral or a virgin or follow Jesus everywhere you go and no lie can ever be in your mouth. You have to be completely blameless to enter the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. Now, should we lie? Absolutely not. Should we walk out promiscuity? Absolutely not. Should we strive to be blameless? Of course we should do those things. But what he's saying is this. this okay, to be clear, this is not a rubric for how you get into the kingdom of heaven. You tracking? This is who you are seated in the kingdom of heaven. This is a picture of Jesus. He's the only one that is these things. We'll get there in a minute. So he's saying, as he looks out, he sees these people, and then he's going to liken it to or compare it to Babylon in a moment. He's saying, I see those who have turned from sexual immorality, those who are virgins, who are clean, who are spotless, those who follow Jesus wherever he goes. No lie is in their mouth, for they are blameless. They have been created now blameless in the kingdom of heaven. If that's our litmus test to get in, church, we ain't getting in. Right? Like today, I broke a lot of those things, right? Like on the way to church, some of you wanted to blow up your minivan because of your kids. That's not blameless, okay? That's the opposite of blameless. You're not getting in if this is the rubric by which you have to meet. I mean, think about the, the guys and gals that would have been in the, that'll be in the kingdom with us. Here's a few to refresh your, mem- your memory. Father Abraham, that your kids will sing about downstairs at some point, gave his wife up for prostitution, not just once. Like once, shame on me. Twice, shame on you. You know, he did it twice. He gives Nana up for prostitution, not once, but twice because he's fearful of what's going to happen to him. What does that sound? Does that sound like blameless to you? No. Does it sound like a striving for sexual purity to you? Absolutely not. Think about Jacob has 12 sons with four different women. 12 sons with four different women. Jacob the 
Deceiver was his name, if you know your Bible. Does it sound like a lie was not in his? His name is literally Jacob the Deceiver. You understand? <laughs> and it gets, his name got changed, but he's going to be in the kingdom. King David, who we've talked at length about throughout the book of Revelation, commits adultery, then sleeps with the dude's, or sleeps with the dude's wife, committing adultery, and then has the guy killed. Does that sound blameless? And yet, because God gives righteousness, he's a man after the Lord's own heart. All these men, you could, we done a, could have done Moses. Moses wakes up drunk and naked, brings shame on his family. And yet, here in the kingdom, we're told throughout the scriptures, he'll be there. Moses, Abraham, Jacob, King David, and also you and me can be seen as righteous, not because of our work, but because of the work of Christ. An eternal gospel. How is it possible, this eternal, eternal gospel, how is it possible that they can be in the kingdom? It's because this no one steps into the kingdom without stepping over the cross. You've got to step in and through the cross of Christ to get to the kingdom of Christ. I imagine this angel is heralding the, this eternal gospel. Whenever I was prepping this, Second Corinthians came to mind. And so we obviously don't know what the, what the, what the angel, what scriptures he's reading or singing, but I think it's safe that we can set in Second Corinthians 5 for a moment as a family. Let me remind you of the gospel. It says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, oh, can you just picture him soaring overhead, booming voice, beautiful voice. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, that has brought us into relationship, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. How can God enter into relationship with us without counting our sins against us? He sends his son to the cross. His son gets the judgment that we deserve. We keep reading, therefore, because of this eternal gospel, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, not through our perfection, not through our good works, not because we have it all together, but as people look at us, the people who hear the gospel and see the gospel, and, they know, and we know, like, man, I'm wildly jacked up. And at the same time, the Father, because of the work of the Son, sees me seated in the kingdom. That's attractive. Like we have something given to us that literally no other religion or spirituality gives to you. That I can be wildly insufficient in and of myself and Jesus can say, I'm sufficient, son. I'm the one that's sufficient. Trust in me and my word. Continue reading 2 Corinthians. For our sake, church, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, through Christ, we might become the very righteousness of God. Does that mean that we have it all together all the time? Absolutely not. Does it mean in our absolute worst and most terrible moments, if we are truly rooted in Christ, that the Father sees us in the light of the Son? Absolutely, yes. That is the eternal gospel. I know I like to geek out on y'all sometimes, and so I'm going to do that. Is that cool? And so even if it's just for me and the other nerds, um, we'll just have a powwow after the gathering. You know, it'll be great. We'll go to lunch. Um, I love systematic theology, and I won't get into all that, but essentially it, it helps me to read the Bible and understand the gospel, and systematic theology teaches me a few things. Uh, one of them is not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to 
lay out what this one thing means through three different terms, if that makes sense to you. This is called the already not yet tension. What that means is that God has already done everything necessary to save you, but he's not yet revealed himself fully to you. Does that make sense? So he's done everything, the cross, the resurrection, everything has happened, yet we don't fully get to embrace and see that in a way as if he's tangibly in front of us, although he is. And so God has already done everything, but we do not yet fully understand and embrace what that means to us. That means specifically that God has saved us, that God is saving us, and that God will forever save us forevermore in the kingdom of God. And so you are saved, you are being perpetually saved, and you will be forever saved in the kingdom of God. This is a picture that the apostle John is giving to us. And so theology would further flesh that out. If I can get a little bit more nerdy on you, the first is called the doctrine of justification. Whenever you profess faith in God and the finished work of Christ, and he comes in, he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, takes up residence inside of you, you are justified. That means you were found not guilty. That means you walked and I walk into the courtroom, blood on our hands, standing before the judge, and Jesus steps between us and he goes, I'll take the punishment. That's justification, has us dead to rights, and yet we share, we'll get there in a second, and yet his life becomes our life, which is the second thing, union with Christ. Whenever you profess faith in Jesus, you are justified, found as not guilty, and then his life, church, literally becomes your life. Like his death literally becomes your death. His resurrection, literally your resurrection. His ascension and being with the Father and the kingdom is literally our ascension. That's a lot for 11.40 a.m., I understand. But just think about it for just a second, dude. Like, for real. How much do you beat yourself up all the time for some negative experience you had or some bad conversation or some poor decision? And yet how freeing is it to go, my God, your son's life is my life. Should I continue sinning and rebelling? Absolutely not. Right? But do I have to set in the guilt and shame of maybe making bad decisions? No, because his death is my death. Is there a great deal of hope for my marriage, hope for my parenting, hope for this sermon, hope for relationships, hope for, yes, because I share in his resurrection. There's resurrection hope in Christ. And even whenever I can't get out of that funk, the beauty of the gospel is that I am seated next to him in the kingdom already right now, even though I'm stuck with you in Collinsville. <laughs> But he sees me as if I'm there. He sees us as if we are there with him. You still tracking with all that? And so then what happens? We profess faith in Jesus. We're justified. Our union is now with Christ. And then as we aim to believe that, we swim in disbelief sometimes. But as we try and we aspire to actually be able to believe that as truth, well, then we have something called progressive sanctification. Not progressive in the use, the cultural use of the word. That's actually regressive. That's a whole other sermon. This is progressive sanctification. As you believe the truths of the gospel, the Holy Spirit in you makes you look more and more and more and more like Christ. Okay? Never, you, we will never meet Christian perfectionism. That's not a thing we believe, but we will. Six months from now, you should look a little bit more like Jesus. A year from now, you should look a little bit more like him. A year and a half, you should look a little bit more. Lord willing, 20 years from now, you should look even more like Christ. We will never achieve perfection, nor should we aspire to. There's only one who is perfect. But as you believe the gospel and you fight for these truths, man, the Holy Spirit, based off faith alone, uses your work to make you look more like Christ. Does that make as much sense as it can for this first date right here? Yeah. 
Now, what I did not say is this. Your good works save you. I did not save that, say that, did I? I didn't say you can earn your way into the kingdom. I said Jesus has satisfied every single prerequisite to enter you into the kingdom. As you believe that, you look more and more and more like him. You progressively, hear me say this, you will progressively begin to look the way that he sees you in the kingdom of God. Chew on that for a second. You're just moving that direction, right? Sometimes it looks good. Sometimes it's a big dip, right? And then it's back up and down. This is what sanctification looks like. If anyone ever comes to you and say, hey, if you just read the Bible more, you just go to church more, you get involved in your small group or missional community more, if you just do more, man, it'll be easy. You'll just smooth sailing all the way to Christ. That guy's a liar. That's not true. If I had to guess the majority of you, when you profess faith in Jesus, life probably didn't get any easier for you, but it might have got a lot harder. If you want to genuinely be in a relationship with family as a Christian, it's going to be harder sometimes. If you want to genuinely be a good employer or employee and do it in Christ, it can get a lot more difficult sometimes. So these three help us to understand this is what this eternal gospel is. If you've never heard the gospel, that's it. That's one form of the gospel. Let me invite you, church, to believe the gospel today. If you're here as a non-believer, let me invite you to believe. If you're here as a skeptic, let's dialogue and talk about it. If you're here as someone who professes faith in Jesus, may the gospel just renew and wash over you afresh today. Like, let it take away the guilt and shame of whatever you're clinging on to. Let it restore and renew your identity. Give you new purpose, renewed purpose, renewed vision for what God has called you to do. Verse seven, here's the response. And he said with a loud voice, this angel did, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Come on, here's your next tattoo. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. That is worship, by the way, to fear God and give him glory and worship him who made heaven and who made the earth and who made the sea and who made the springs of water. The apostle John is saying, give him everything. If that's true, give him everything. What is there worth holding on to? Verse 8, and another angel, a second angel followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come on, she who made the nations, all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is a triumphant battle cry. It is still booming and it is still beautiful. And so this other angel is coming and the apostle John, what he's doing, he's drawing out this other uh, dichotomy or drawing out this other comparison. We're saying over here, you have the 144,000. They are righteous. They are good. They are perfect. And over here, you have Babylon. And what happened is whenever, the, read your Old Testament, whenever Israel was taken into captivity by Babylon, Jeremiah 3 tells us that Israel became so foul and so immersed in the culture, so immersed in sexual immorality, so immersed in cultural ideologies and ideals that God could no longer even bear to look at them, that God wrote up a writ of divorce. He like drew up divorce papers, if I may, and he goes to literally slide those divorce papers across the kitchen table, and in that moment, it's like he just could not shake the reality of Jesus coming. And so like in the midst of Israel looking like terrible Israel that they were. He's like, I'm done. And yet knowing that Jesus is going to come, this eternal gospel comes into the picture. And he's like, but I can't leave them. Like that's my covenant people. That's my bride that he would say. Israel is my bride. And so regardless of how foul and defiled and adulterous Israel was, 
He says, but there's a better one coming. There's a better spouse that is coming. And his name is going to be Jesus. And he's going to sit on the throne. And he's the Lamb of God. And so this is what he's, the Apostle John is kind of drawing out Babylon. Everything that you have found yourself enslaved to is simply no more. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. He's saying, will we struggle with it? Yes and amen. We're going to struggle our whole lives. But he's saying, but you don't have to be enslaved to it. It is a battle cry. Babylon the Great has fallen. Like it's a big deal. Let's say it's a big deal. Let's, maybe I should put that on the screen. This is a big deal in this moment right here. This song is a chant of victory. I mean, it's being heard everywhere. It would have been thunderous and it would have been melodic, like someone playing the harp. This is the gospel. This is this eternal gospel. No one steps into the kingdom without stepping over the cross. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Until you're willing to die to self as Christ has died for you, you will not experience the kingdom of God. He's calling an abandonment of all things. But if he's going to offer all of that up, how could we not abandon all things for that? That's incredible that he's given us. So now, hear the warning, saints. It's going to get not as fun and joyful, but it is real. And it is God's word. So hear the warning. Warning for the saints. Verse 9. And another angel, this is now a third angel, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, uh, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So let's pause that for a second. This is nothing new than what we've already seen in the book of Revelation. Specifically, if you're here, the last couple weeks, we've seen this level of torment. We've seen this torture. We've seen the locusts that have come in an army. If you remember, a myriad times myriad, 30,000 times 30,000 demonic influencers and oppressors were, were coming to kind of meet the demise of the unrighteous. And so the Apostle John is saying, I, I'm seeing these unrighteous. I'm seeing those that had 666 on their forehead and in their hand. It was not a vaccine he's, not, he's talking about. It was not some microchip that had been given. He's talking about the unrighteousness of humanity. When we looked at 666, he says, that's the mark of man. It's the mark of the beast, but it's the number of man. He's saying you're either born in Adam and in the flesh and reborn in Christ and the Holy Spirit, or you're not. Like that's the two. You're not kind of halfway, one foot in, one foot out, just like in any marriage. This is a covenant relationship. You are either married or you are not married. That's it. You say, well, we're married in our hearts, pastor. No, you're not. That's not a real thing. You just made that up and said it out loud like it was real. Turns out, still not real. There's lots of other things that have to happen. So it is here, right? He's saying you are either in or you are not in. That's it. You're either in relationship or you're not in relationship. You either have the mark of man or you have the mark of the spirit. That's what he's saying. And so he's saying for those that have the mark of man, it's like it should not catch us by surprise. He's just saying they don't believe in Jesus. And so he said in Genesis 3, those who do not believe and rebel, man, they're going to have to come into my presence and it's going to be devastating. It's going to lead to death. And so he's making good on his promise that he made that imperfection cannot come before perfection. And so every week, what's interesting about this here is we, we look at what's called a, a fallen, we don't always say this word, but a fallen condition focus if you're a note taker, an FCF, a fallen condition focus. And so every text, every scripture that you read, you should look for like, is there a sin that is revealed that leads me to a greater dependency on Christ? 
Like, if you don't talk about sin, then there's no need to be dependent on Jesus, right? And so we have to be reminded of, like, oh, I'm not him. I do need him. Here's some different ways that I need him. And so the FCF of this text, I think, is this right here. Uh, Last week I said Jesus is everything Satan pretends to be. You remember that as a big idea? Jesus is everything Satan pretends to be. Well, this week I think I would say these 144,000 are everything that we pretend to be. These 144,000 here in the text are everything that we pretend to be. And, And the reality is that people want to use the word like a believer when you're a Christian. Like, I'm a believer. Are you a believer? Not a believer, just to be clear, Justin Bieber, but a believer. You with me? Not a believer, but a believer with a V. They'll use that word. We kind of throw around a lot of Christianese, don't we, as a church? But the reality is, in our belief, we regularly fall prey to unbelief. Right? Anytime you find yourself walking away from God as a believer, it's because you're experiencing some level of unbelief. You're not actually believing the gospel in its totality. So in times then when you don't believe the gospel in its totality, then you begin to walk away from Jesus, which totally makes sense. If you don't believe that to be good news, you'll create good news. And so the reality is this. We don't actually believe regularly and often that the Father genuinely sees us seated in the kingdom as righteous. We don't genuinely believe that the Father sees us as if we're seated in the kingdom imperfection. Like regularly what will happen is it will come before a, a perfect triune living God. But what we'll do is instead of looking at him, we'll kind of look in the mirror and we'll see all of our imperfections and all of our past and all of our history and all the poor family dynamics and all the kind of junk in our life. And we project that onto him, right? It, I, if I had to guess, right, the way you view God as a father probably has something to do with your dad, not with anything else. Or maybe the way you view yourself as a father can be projected upon him. Here's how you see him as a father. So instead of seeing him as beautiful and righteous and pure and holy, what we do in in times of unbelief, to be clear, we look at ourselves and then we project that image onto him. Thus revealing we don't believe that he actually sees us as perfect in the kingdom. But my, how would things change for you today if you did? Like genuinely, it, it if, the next, if later today, whenever you play back in your mind the conversation you had six months ago that did not go the way you wanted it to and you kind of made a butt of yourself, how would that scenario play out different in your mind if you're like, yes, but the Father sees me in light of the Son. Thank you, Jesus, for seeing me the way you see me. Like, what if tonight, whenever you go to bed and you wake up at two in the morning and you're replaying the reel of you over-disciplining your child... And you're like, did I have to say it that way? Maybe I shouldn't have spanked in this moment. Maybe I could have fill in the blank. Like what if in that moment you said, yeah, but the father sees my life in light of Jesus's life. And I don't have to beat myself up as a parent because the son died on the cross for me. Now, what'll happen if you're really religious is you'll say, well, you'll use that as an advantage to do it again, as a means to do it again. But I would argue that if you actually believe the gospel in that moment, It's close to impossible to go, the grace that you've given me, I'm just simply not going to give to someone else. The love that you've revealed to me that I'm just not going to give to someone. The mercy that you've given me, Lord, I'm just not going to. No, what happens over time as you believe the gospel progressively sanctifying, what happens is this, how can I not give my kids the same mercy that you've given me? 
How can I not give them the same grace that you've given me? Even as I'm laying here in bed in a scenario just reeling over and over and over again. God, help me to give myself the same grace that you have given me. Help me to experience the mercy that you have given me. God, help me to understand my unions with you. Your life is my life. Your death is my death. Your resurrection is my resurrection. Help me to resurrect right now. That's what the gospel does. It's not just Jesus died for your sins, believe that, and one day go to heaven. No, it's, it's an eternal gospel for now. And the warning of the text is when you stray from that good news, you'll then in that moment find good news somewhere else. You'll go find, I'll go find a different relationship. Or I'm not doing well as a parent over here, so I'll throw myself into my job. Because there I get affirmed, and there I feel good, and there they pay me. Or I can't, I can't do this very well. I'm not, I don't feel confident in and of myself. So instead of turning to Jesus, like, I'll just go back to the gym again. I'll just change my diet again. I'll just do this again. I just need a little retail therapy. That'll make me feel good. Speaking of Target, that'll make me feel great. Right? Like, that's what we do. And so what happens when you don't believe the gospel is you seek righteousness and perfection from everywhere else. But everything that you want and long for is found in Christ. He looks at you and says, you don't have to aspire for more. I've done it. Just simply remain. Just believe the gospel. These 144,000 are every one that we pretend to be. We talked about in the park, man, people come in to this service. They come in on a Sunday. You walk into a missional community. You meet them for the first time. You're like, how are you doing? They're like, I'm fine. We call that the Christian F word around here. I'm fine. It's a four-letter word. I'm fine. We know as leaders, you're not fine. We know it. You know how we know? Because most of us have kids. We know you're not fine. Most of us are married. We know that ain't always easy, right? We get it. And so when you come in and you put on this facade and you act like everything's perfect and everything's okay, the gospel has dined you out, church. It has sold you out. Because the reality is this, if you were fine or you were perfect, if Mark was fine and perfect, who just led us up here, if he was perfectly righteous, I'd be preaching a sermon about Mark Hanna. He ain't in the kingdom of heaven. He's in Collinsville. He's right there. He didn't do anything. He led a great worship set. Praise the Lord. Outside of that, he ain't fine. You know what I'm saying? I'm not preaching sermons on you. I'm preaching them on Jesus. Because he's the only one that's perfect. You tracking? Stop acting like you got it all together, dude. You don't have it all together. John is begging them. Dude. He's begging them. Here's, hear me say this in case I, my tangent lost you. He's saying this. Stop drinking the wrath before it's been delivered to you. Stop drinking the wrath. Because look at me and tell me that every time you pursue that gym or that relationship or that next relationship or that next promotion or that next, that perpetual cycle, tell me it doesn't eat away at you a little bit. Tell me it doesn't feel a little bit like death, a little bit more dissatisfying every time you don't meet your own expectations. Who has let you down in your life more than you when you're sitting in bed at night? That's cycle, man. It's not going to go well for you. So stop drinking the wrath of God before it's been served. Verse 11. Here's what it looks like in eternity though. And the smoke of their torment, this is for the unrighteous, goes up forever and ever and they have, have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image. I remember he made a little idol for that image last week. And whoever receives the mark of its name. Verse 12. Here's the call for the endurance of the saints. It's exactly what he said last week. Here's the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith 
in Jesus. And so the call here is not to do more. The call here is not to feel bad. The call here is not to swim in guilt. The call in here is not to check something else off the to-do list. The call here is the faithful endurance. I have people come to me as a, obviously as I'm a pastor, and they'll come and they'll say, God, no, I'll say God, sorry. They'll say, Corey, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Does he want me, should I take this job or this job? Should we move here or should we move here? Should I pursue this or should I pursue this? What is God's will? Here it is. God's will for your life is faithful endurance. That's it. If you leave today and you're like, man, what do I do? I feel like that sermon said all these things. What do I do? Faithful endurance. What does faithful endurance look like? It looks like, yeah, getting in the word, Sure. It looks like spending time in prayer. It looks like being in Christian community. Yes and amen. Those things in and of themselves do not save you. Jesus saves you. But if you want to learn more about him and you want to learn what it looks like to look more like him, faithful endurance involves spiritual disciplines, right? You don't do this to get anything though other than Jesus. He gives us these resources so we can find him beautiful, not just useful, want to behold his glory and see him said, worship him, find him beautiful, enter into his presence. If you want to know what to do, should you buy a house A or house B? Just faithfully endure for Christ. Just pursue Christ. And the rest will make sense to you. Andrea and I, what we'll do is, my wife Andrea, Andrea and I, what we'll do regularly when we have to make a big decision, which isn't all the time, a couple times, uh, a couple years at a time probably is when this happens, we'll get some kind of big a thing that'll come to us, like, should we buy a house, sell a house? Uh, should I quit my job and go work somewhere else? Job opportunity, opportunities come, and we don't just say no. i just so in love with Heights community. I could never fathom, and depending on the week, it's like, yes and amen, Lord, thank you. Those people are crazy, okay? And it doesn't happen a lot, but when it does happen, what we do is not, God, should I go or should I stay? We pray a prayer. Jesus be my center. Jesus be our center. That's the whole prayer. She's taught me, you don't have to pray sermons at the table. Corey, you can preach on Sunday. Just something quick and easy here. Just Jesus be my center. Seriously, you want to know what to do? The next six months of your life? Take 30 days and go, Jesus be our center. Amen. Faithful endurance is what he is calling you to. Here's a call for endurance of the saints. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, the second time he says that, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That is us. Blessed are those who are dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, the Holy Spirit says, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. Their deeds do not get them into the kingdom, but their deeds, their good works, most certainly follow them into this kingdom. John is begging his brothers, begging his sisters, faithfully endure, aspire to look like Christ, walk out godliness, yes, and pursue spiritual disciplines. And at the same time, when you fail, there is an eternal gospel that is full of grace and mercy and goodness, and it's been given to you. And as you believe that grace and that mercy and that reality of who Jesus is, it begins to well up in you. And then you begin to look more and more and more like him. It's not a license to continue sinning. It's the beauty of the gospel and it raptures you up into the kingdom of heaven right now. Not in the future, but now. Third point, final point, final judgment. There's no way uh, to spice this up, church. You just got to get God's word is what it is right here. Verse 14. I'm going to read 14 through uh, 20. Uh, Then I looked and behold... 
that behold in the Greek is actually sarcasm whenever um, the Apostle John is speaking. He said, then I looked and behold, like my, who didn't see that coming, but he most certainly did. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar and the angel who has authority over the fire and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's brittle for 1,600 stadia. That's about four and a half feet deep and 200 miles long. That's the blood of the unrighteous. The first time I ever taught this text, I was a guest pastor at someone else's church. I never have let them live it down from that point forward. It's the most uncomfortable sermon I had ever given. The reality is this. This is the final reaping, final judgment that most of Revelation now has kind of brought us here to this moment where you have those who are marked in perfection, not because of their work, but because of Christ, and those who are marked in unrighteousness. Or you could say those who are marked in righteousness and those who are marked in unrighteousness. And so he's saying that the reality is this. God's grace and God's mercy is not coming to a halt at all, but it is at its kind of end here in the text, that the unrighteous, the blood of the unrighteous will literally be four and a half feet deep, 200 miles wide. Again, this is imagery, but what he's saying is this is what the kingdom of God is going to look like. There are going to be those who are righteous and those who are not. And both will receive, receive judgment. Both will be reconciled. Some are going to be reconciled under the headship and authority of Jesus Christ in relationship with him forevermore. And some are going to be reconciled under the headship and the authority of Christ in, the, in hell literally forevermore. And so the only difference between these two people here, the, the kind of the tension of the dichotomy here is you have those who are righteous that have said, I see the lamb, I behold the lamb, I've experienced the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me, for redeeming me, for stepping into my, in my place as my substitute. And then you have those over here who are not, who are saying, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And so God has left them simply to their own wishes. But he's saying, but this is what it's going to look like. Now, here's what's, this is hard to swallow on first note, but here's what's beautiful about this. And I want you to hear the gospel application of this text. There is again, nothing new happening here. There's nothing new. Like this isn't the first time the wine press has presented itself. Keep in mind that the apostle John is using imagery to explain what is happening. The only reason we get to step over the cross and step into the kingdom is because Jesus hung on the cross. You can call it a wine press if you want to. Whenever Jesus goes to the cross, he who knew no sin became the very sin of God. What does that mean? That means the, became the very sin of man. That means the very righteousness of God, the wrath of God, the anger of God came so hard, so fast, so crushing against his body. That's the only way we can enter into the kingdom. Like he has to hang in our place as our substitute. Think about this. 
The picture of the 144,000 is just a picture of Jesus. The church is going to look like Jesus. Who's perfectly spotless? Jesus. Who's the only one that's never lied? Jesus. Who's the only one that's perfectly clean? Use the word virgin if you want. Jesus. It's just a picture of like, this is who you are in Christ because it's who Christ is. And then you have the judgment of Christ and you have the wine press and the blood that is pouring out. It's just a picture of Christ. Like there's nothing new that is here. You still with me? Okay, I just, you're either shocked or you're asleep. So it's like, it's a, to, it's a toss up some, some Sundays. But like this, nothing new is happening here. Think about this. Jesus literally, before you get mad at him, Jesus goes to the cross for the unrighteous. He experiences everything the unrighteous is going to experience here. So folks want to come in and throw stones at Jesus, but he literally experienced everything he's saying is coming. He's not disconnected or disassociated from that reality. He's saying, hey, what happened to me on the cross will happen to you for eternity. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that we believe he went to the cross for our sins. That's it. No, no, No pride, no arrogance in there, not looking down our nose at anyone. We're saying, no, we believe Jesus experienced the wine press for my salvation. Do you want to believe that or not? I'm either going to rest union with Christ. I'm either going to rest in his death in the wine press or I'm not. And I'm going to experience it myself. That's the only difference. That still makes sense to you. That's it. So Jesus, the church is a perfect picture of Christ. This judgment is most certainly true and accurate judgment, but it's nothing new. It's what he has already experienced for us. He is justified in our place as our substitute. He then sends us the Holy Spirit to sanctify us so we can share in his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And then he goes as far as the sea is as if we're already with him in the kingdom. That is crazy. That's crazy. No one else. No one else even wrote that. That is so crazy. And he does all of this for you and me, for the saints. Last thing I'm going to say, and then we can stand for communion. He said in the book of Hebrews, that the very joy that led him to the wine press was knowing where his people would be positioned. That's, dude, that's a level of grace and mercy we just can't fathom. Why don't you all stand with me for communion the team? You all can come back up. This is good news for us. As we enter into the table, especially in light of the, before you guys open those uh, packages, let me explain communion to you, then you can open them. As we move to the table here uh, for communion, let me just remind you that communion is an example. It's a picture. It's literally something tangible you can feel in regards to that wine press. Right? Every, I said everything that Jesus encountered, he encountered. He encountered all levels of unrighteousness for the unrighteous so that we could be saved. Whenever we go to communion, this is what we're celebrating that his body was broken in that press on the cross, that his blood was spilt in that press on that cross. Literally, communion is the reminder that our union is with Christ, that we have been justified in Christ, that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Communion is even a foreshadowing of something called a messianic banquet, where we get to be given the book of Revelation. It's coming, a couple more weeks, it'll be there where we are given the best of meats and the finest of wines, and we get to dine for eternity with our king. Communion represents all of that. This is why we take communion. It's not a religious event. It is most certainly a redemptive event. It is a narrative that exists in the palm of your hand for what Jesus has done 
for you. Everything that we've done today is a lead to this moment right here for communion. And it gives you the opportunity then as a saint, man, to, to profess, to confess, to say, hey, I don't always put you first. I, am, I don't always believe the gospel. God, help me do that. And so as a Christian in the room, you don't, it doesn't take much. You just say, hey, Lord, help recalibrate me right here before I get into this meal. And for those of you that are not yet in Christ, it's an opportunity for you to kind of see the saints take a meal. But also it gives you an opportunity then to profess faith, to say, man, I do turn to myself. I don't always uh, turn to you. So the Apostle Paul, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. He's explaining the wine press. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're not proclaiming our good works. We proclaim his good works. We're not proclaiming we saved ourselves or did anything. We proclaim that he most certainly did those things in our place as our substitute. So for those of you that are in Christ, uh, the table is open and the meal is for you.